Well, good morning, everyone. Hi, hi, hi. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Matt. I'm doing Bluetooth high fives this morning. Bluetooth, let's sync up. Okay, okay, good job. Good morning in here. Good morning out in the plaza. Uh, and to all watching online, joining us from home, we are so glad just to be gathered together as a church today. If you guys have your Bibles, would you go ahead and open those up to Acts 2? Acts 2, we're going to be in verses 42 through 47 this morning as we continue our series called Unstoppable. Unstoppable, it's our journey through Acts. And so we're going to just dive right in right now. We're going to let Scripture set the tone for us. I know we all just sat down, we're kind of comfortable, but I would love for us to stand once again in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to jump in uh, and to read Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 47. All right, let's start out here. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And Heavenly Father, right now we ask, Lord, that you would do what you do best. God, through your word and by your spirit, would you come minister to us right here, right now, that we would be reminded, refreshed of your unstoppable grace in us, for us, and through us. Pray that today, God, you would press that truth down deep into our hearts. Praise in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to tell you guys about my favorite, favorite ever Christmas present. Uh, it was back when I was in high school. My parents, they got me a guitar. I'd been begging for drums, but they got me a guitar. Uh, but so that became my favorite Christmas present of all time because right off the bat, I'm like, dude, I'm going to get this guitar and I'm going to learn how to play all of my favorite songs. And I found out something amazing. Amazing. All of my favorite songs could be played with four chords. I don't know what that says about my musical taste, <laughs> but I don't even care. All I knew is that I do, I have a guitar now and I can just rock. I can play all my favorite songs. So I figured out how to play all of Blink-182. I figured out every Green Day song. And what's amazing about four chords, you can play every worship song ever written. And so it was just fun. Like, that's all you need. So if you're someone out there and you're like, ah, I want to learn how to play guitar, but it just seems so complicated and technical. Let me just reassure you. Learn four chords and you got it down. That's all, that's all you really need is the simplicity of four chords. I love that. This, uh, that f just off of four chords alone, countless uh, catchy songs and melodies and stuff can come and be derived from and built on top of four chords. And I, I can't help but to think of how this illustrates something that we just read about together. You see, in Acts 2, 42 through 47, it, what we see is a description of what the Holy Spirit produced in the life of the early church. I don't know about you, if you've been around the church for a long time or Christianity for a long time, like, it tends to get complicated. It can be. 
It can feel complicated. It can feel confusing as we add layer upon layer of tradition or rules or this is the way that we're supposed to do things. It can just kind of get really muddy and really obscure the simplicity of what the Spirit is doing, what the Spirit is up to. And guess what? It doesn't have to be this way. So what we see today in today's passage, we see a simple four-chord song that the Spirit is writing and playing on the instrument of the church. Four simple chords that really shaped all of life for this early church. And it's my prayer today that, that we, we here in this room, out in the plaza, on watching at home online, that we would each catch a glimpse of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. The song that he is writing in our lives individually, but also as a church family here at Seacoast. And so let's, we're gonna, in a moment, let's jump into these four chords, these four characteristics that the Spirit produced in the church right from the beginning. And I want to kind of start out by setting up some context before we jump into these four things. You see, like a really good sequel, uh, the book of Acts, it's, it's the continuation of what Luke wrote in his gospel, the gospel of Luke. You see, the Gospel of Luke, if you think about it like an hourglass, the top of the hourglass, you know, Luke was writing about Jesus' life, his ministry, his miracles, the disciples, all of their myths, the stuff that they did together, and then all of a sudden Jesus turns towards Jerusalem, and the focus gets narrower and narrower. And we see the hourglass kind of coming down, the focus becoming so narrow that it comes down to one singular grain of sand that you and I are supposed to to fixate on, to see and to savor. One grain of sand, and that's the cross and the resurrection. Luke brings it all down to the cross and the resurrection. What we see in Acts is now that bottom half of that, that hourglass. We see the explosion. We see the, the movement of the, the unstoppable nature of God's grace moving out into the world through the Holy Spirit. And right from the get-go, right from the beginning of Acts, Luke wants to make it very, very clear that this is the Spirit, the Spirit's work that is unstoppable. It's the Spirit dwelling within the church that is the cause of the unstoppable spread. I mean, right at the beginning of Acts, we see Jesus saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. See, and then we get into chapter 2 Acts of Acts. God is, we see God is making good on his promise to send the Holy Spirit. And if you guys want a really simple outline for just chapter 2 of, of Acts, really what we see is that the Holy Spirit shows up. He's, the Holy Spirit is explained. That's verses 1 through 13. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up and moves in, and the Holy Spirit is experienced. And then we see the Holy Spirit is explained. What Ryan covered last week was the Spirit had moved in, and Peter stands up in front of the crowd, and he, he explains what's happening. He explains what, what is going on, because it was a pretty chaotic scene. He brought meaning, and he made sense of it. He explained. And what we're going to see today is that the Holy Spirit is, is expressed so he's experienced, he's explained, and then what we see today in verses 42 to 47 is he is expressed. And what we see is that the Spirit is expressing himself by producing these four characteristics, these four chords in the church. And so let's look at those one by one here. The first chord that we see of this, this song is passion. Passion. 
Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So notice it doesn't say that they devoted themselves to go to church. They don't, it doesn't say that they devoted themselves just to go to church. I mean, they were continually devoting themselves. Let me talk about that word devoting, or devoted really quick. That's a very, very strong verb. It means to attach oneself to, to spend time in, to persist tenaciously in, to be stubborn about. You know, I can say I, right now I'm pretty devoted to finishing season two of Cobra Kai. I mean, you ain't going to stop me. It's going to happen. <laughs> but that, the, the devotion to talk about here is times a thousand, okay? It's this insane devotion, this crazy amount of devotion. And uh, it wasn't just devotion to show up and go to church. In fact, just go to church, that's way too small to, actually, to adequately describe what the Spirit was doing, what he had brought. So, but what did they devote themselves to? Let's look at this. This is another set of four things here I want to uh, briefly cover. What did they devote themselves to? The first thing is the apostles' teaching. Well, what's the apostles' teaching? Well, we can answer that question by not going too far back. I mean, if you just look at the previous section in chapter 2, we see Peter getting up to explain what was going on. That's a fantastic summary of what we could say is the apostles' teaching. Ryan taught on this last week. But to sum it all up, I mean, it really comes down to it's all about Jesus. It's about his identity as the Messiah, the promised Messiah, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, the fact that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the apostles' teaching can really, it can be summed up as the gospel. They devoted themselves to the good news of all that God had done in Christ. So notice, they're not devoting themselves to good advice. Like, you can do it. Good advice. Clean yourself up. Here's 10 tips to do that. No, they devoted themselves to good news. And there's a big difference. You see, the gospel is, is good news. It's not just good advice. It's not good advice to help good people get better and better. No, it, the gospel is good news for people who realize that they're bad and they have come face to face with their inability to get better. There's a huge difference Let's remember this original batch of believers, I mean, they had been cut to the heart. They had been cut to the heart by the realization of their sin, of their guilt, and they had just experienced the amazing freedom of forgiveness, of God's grace. And so they were new. They were cut to heart. They were new. And they, de uh, they were captivated by this gospel. They devoted th themselves to it. And so it's important for us to see, I want to call this out really quick. It's important for us to see that the outpouring uh, of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't move people beyond the gospel. It moves people deeper into it. When the Spirit pours himself out, it doesn't move people beyond teaching and needing to understand the truth. You know, because in, cer in certain Christian circles, there tends to be this sense of like, oh, this is a Spirit-driven church. Over here, we, we're all about the Spirit. And then and maybe over here, it's like, no, we're all about the Bible. We're all about truth. It's all true than in any of the spirit talk that kind of makes people nervous if you're in the Bible only camp and if you're in the spirit camp, this, the Bible people, it, might, it feels too rigid. And again, I'm painting a little bit of a character here, but there, there tends to be this pitting up, like pitting the spirit up against the Bible, you know, like, like they're two different things. 
And I don't think we're called to make a choice. I think here what we, what we see is that it is a both and, not an either or. You see, we've been filled with the Spirit, and what the Spirit longs to do is to make the gospel real to our hearts. It's a both and. You see, Jesus himself, he said in John 15 and John 16, if you read through his, his, uh, what he is saying there, he, I mean, he describes the work of the Spirit. He said that the Spirit is going to come. He's going to come and testify about me. Jesus says this. It's the Spirit's going to come. He's going to testify about me. And then he's going to guide. He's going to lead you into all truth. And so we need to beware of any, any spiritual movement that minimizes the Bible, saying, oh, you know, it's all about the Spirit. And like, you know, let's not, they don't really give a nod to the Bible. Let's, let's beware of any spiritual movement that, that minimizes the Bible. But also, let's beware of any spiritual movement that minimizes the Spirit. Jesus said that, apart from me, you can do nothing. So to both and see the Spirit's job description is to comfort, to guide, to counsel, to draw you and I to the truth of Jesus in the Bible, in Scripture, and to make God's love real to our hearts. And so there's a lot of teaching out there. There's a lot of teaching. You can go, especially in Encinitas, we live in a very spiritual city. There's a lot of teaching that is out there. But a spirit-filled church will always be devoted to the faithful uh, preaching of the gospel. They'll be devoted to the faithful, to faithful gospel teaching. Okay, so that's the first thing that they devoted themselves to. The second thing that we see that they devote themselves to is fellowship. They're all about, they were devoting themselves to relationships. I love that it, the gospel, a gospel conviction produces and births a gospel culture. You see, the Spirit longs to draw us together. Here's the thing, the, the word fellowship, I feel like it gets so watered down. You know, we talk, like, fellowship has kind of become one of those Christian F words, like food, fun, and fellowship, come on, let's go. You know, I, I grew up in a church that had the fellowship hall, you know, where it's just where you drink coffee and had donuts. I'm like, is that what they're devoting themselves to? <laughs> that kind of fellowship? No, the Fellowship has gotten watered down to mean kind of this, oh, it's a time of friendly chit-chat. <laughs> but it's far, far more than that. It means a lot more than nice little chit-chat. It means participation, partnership, closeness, being closely associated. You see, fellowship is where everyone is personally engaged and no one is a spectator. And here's something a little scary when we talk about true fellowship True fellowship means you're going to be known. True fellowship means that you're going to be known. And being devoted to fellowship is being devoted to bringing all of yourself, bringing all of yourself, because you see, you and I, we were all created, and uh, from the ground up, we were created for relationships. But the thing is, we grow up in a world that teaches us to hide, teaches us to fake it, teaches us to pretend, teaches us to not let the cracks show. Don't let people know who you really are. And living that way is exhausting, is it not? Is it, it's exhausting. When we live that way, we're actually shutting ourselves out. We're holding our cards so close to our chest, we're shutting ourselves off from being known and therefore loved. Because we can only be loved to the degree that we are known. 
But the gospel of grace, it frees us to tell the truth about ourselves. It, it tells us that we're, we're, we don't have to hide. You see, when everything, when we realize that everything that we have done, are doing, or will do in the future, that is sin, I mean, everything, that has all been covered, it's all been removed by the cross. When, we, when that reality sinks in, I mean, we don't have to live our lives pretending anymore. We don't need to hide. We don't need to live our lives to pretending or protecting ourselves, proving ourselves, posturing ourselves. You see, it's in the context of community. It's when we are in fellowship. I love this. It's when we're in fellowship, we get to try out trusting our new identity with one another. We get to, to risk, you know, try, I'm going to try out trusting that I'm actually righteous and I'm a, that with you. Think about that. I mean, God, if I, okay, you made me righteous. I'm not just 20% righteous. I'm not 35% righteous or whatever. I'm, I'm righteous all the way. Righteousness of Christ. If that is true of me right here, right now, I want to express that in my relationships with others. That means I don't have to live getting my righteousness from you. I don't have to live my life proving myself to you. I can live my life, man, I have been made righteous. I'm whole. I am complete. I'm a child of God. And now I can live my life serving and blessing and loving you. The gospel frees us to do that. You see, fellowship is this context where we get to experience and express our new identity. And I guarantee you, the people sitting next to you, here in this room, out in the plaza, at home, on the couch, Wherever you are, the people sitting right next to you are longing to step into and to try out this new identity, this new creation identity, to live that out with you. And we get to be a safe place for that to happen. And when we talk about fellowship, when we talk about this living like all in and it's all of me, uh, living, it means all of you, not just the strong and capable you, but the weak and limited you. That gets to come out. See, when we, we think of uh, our limitations and our weaknesses, we think of those things as things to hide, keep the cards close to our chest, don't let people in, don't let them see that. But your limitations are not in the way of God's plan for your life. What if they are God's plan for your life? Your weakness and limitations are the very things that set you up to be able to receive love. If you want a really succinct definition of what love is, Love is the process of meeting needs. And where there is no need, there can be no love. So I could sit up, I could, if you know me, and I could, I could pretend to be all together and be you know, smart and have everything all figured out, and you may respect me, you may look up to me, you may think, oh man, he's a great guy, but there's literally no way for you to actually love me because you don't know me, because I'm not letting you. And I love fellowship, community. This is context where, you, where the real me gets to be known and seen and loved. It can come out of hiding. So when God's love sinks in and you start to see yourself the way that he sees you, you're going to realize you're actually worth knowing. You're actually worth knowing and you have a lot to give and a lot to offer. And so this is what the, the spirit produces. It's the passion to be together, to be known, to give and to receive love. They devoted themselves to fellowship, not as a spectator, but as a partner, a participant. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
And breaking of bread, it, can, it oftentimes really is, is uh, referring to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake in together at the end of this service. It can mean the Lord's Supper, but also included just to mealtime and sharing of meals. But they, re- they met regularly to remember the sacrifice of Christ through communion and to pray. And I don't know about you, that sounds pretty simple, does it not? I mean, think about what had just happened. I mean, they were in a room the, the, the spirit shows up, and the wind's going everywhere. Everyone's hair is getting messed up. Tongues of fire are coming down, and like it was a chaotic, crazy scene. 3,000 people join. It's this amazing scene. And what's the result of all that? A simple devotion. I thought there would be something a little bit more radical, but no, it was simple. It's a simple devotion to these simple things. And what we see is the spirit isn't making things more complicated Rather, the Spirit is producing a passion, a devotion to simple things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So that's the first, you know, the chord of the song that we see is the, that the Holy Spirit is writing is passion. The second characteristic, the second chord the Spirit is expressing in the church is amazement. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. I mean, they were in awe. They were astonished. They were filled with wonder. And I just want to call out a couple things about this verse. First, notice the order here. The order matters. You know, it's interesting how the awe, it comes first, then the signs and wonders. I would tend to think... No, it was like the signs and wonders that were showing up here, and like it produced all, all this awe. Like, oh my goodness, did you see what happened? That was like the, the awe came from signs and wonders, but this verse is telling us something different. I, w- I will say this, though, that, that a lot of good-hearted Christians will disagree and debate on what we should expect to see today with regards to signs and wonders, and Dale's actually going to hit on this a little next week as we get into chapter 3 where it's the first miracle that the apostles perform that shows up. So we're going to hit on that a little bit. So it's okay that there's debate and disagreement, but I just want to note, I want us to see that in this verse, the signs and wonders aren't what produced the awe. The awe came first, not because of signs and wonders. After all, they didn't need signs and wonders to create the awe because the gospel of grace itself is awe-inspiring. You see, it's grace is, grace is and was and is strong enough, big enough, potent enough to produce awe, inspire awe within the church. You see, again, this group of, of believers, I mean, their lives had just been changed. They had received brand new, fresh clarity about their sin and about their Savior. These are the very people that, that had put Jesus on the cross, As we saw last week, I mean, Peter says, you crucified Jesus. You killed him. You killed him. And so they had experienced their desperation, like, we killed God. We we killed God. And then they had been moved. They experienced their desperation, and now they had experienced their deliverance. God forgave us. He changed us. He filled us. Hear this, the people who are most in awe of God's grace are the people who are most, in, most aware of their guilt. The people who are most in awe of God's grace are the people who are most aware of their guilt. You see, the more acutely aware we become of our weakness, 
of our failure, the more awe we're going to experience in the amazing, amazing grace of God. And this awe, what it does is it produces in us a natural response of just being able to boast in Jesus. I just want to boast in Christ, the cross, the resurrection. It changes everything. You see, this, this group of believers, they knew that their only hope was Christ. They knew God loved them, even though they were the guilty ones. And I think the same is true for you and I today. I mean, think right now, right now where you're at. Think of a time where you failed, failed badly, and the response was love. You see, when you are on the receiving end of one-way love, grace that comes to you in your moment of failure, when you uh, receive and experience love on your worst day, it changes you. I mean, I recently, long ago, experienced something similar. Have you ever walked away from a, of a you know, time hanging out with some friends, and as you leave, you're kind of replaying the video in your mind of how things went down, and you're like, and then, you know, oh, why did I say that? Why did I, you know, I, I do this all the time. Um, and I remember one time, I, I, just not too long ago, just got done spending some time with some friends, and as I was um, thinking about it afterwards, I just was filled with all of a sudden this regret, remorse, the sense of, of really of being ashamed of my, my actions, the things I said, the things I did, like my behavior. It was eating away at me. And I was like, oh, man, you know, and it, I need to apologize, but I felt, I felt embarrassed, to be honest. But I ended up just, okay, I sent out a text to a few people and just apologized. So, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize for my behavior, my actions. That was not consistent with what the Spirit wants to do and express in my life. I was, I was living inconsistently with who I am, and I hurt you. And then I received a few responses. I want to read just one of them that I got. A friend says this. Apology accepted. I would never judge you because I know your heart and we can't always be perfect. I'm always there for you no matter what. And honestly, that simple reply, that text message, it it set me free. I felt the sense of healing, of this cleansing, this, this lightheartedness. It was really what, what was happening in that moment. Is I was experiencing horizontally in a relationship something that was already true about my relationship vertically. I was experiencing this tangible love and grace of Jesus. And being on the receiving end of unflinching love in a moment of weakness, in a moment of failure, it caused my heart to well up with joy, pure awe. I was experiencing in that moment the amazement of grace. And I heard someone ask this question, and I want to ask you this morning. Is it possible that one of the reasons God has allowed you to make big mistakes is so that your understanding of grace would be deeper than if you hadn't blown it? I'll ask that again. Is it possible that one of the reasons God has allowed you to make big, big mistakes is so that your understanding of grace would be deeper than if you hadn't blown it? Because you see that the truth is that the people who have failed, 
the people who have made mistakes, those are the people who have the most to say and to, the most to offer other people who fail. They're the ones who have the most to say about grace. In other words, the best evangelist, the best evangelist for grace are the very ones who have experienced their desperation for it. Because when you experience it, you cannot help but to share it. You're amazed. You're in awe. And the best evangelists are the people that know God's amazing grace is their daily lifeline. That if it were not for the grace of God, they would be lost. And so we experience grace when we see an, uh, other people's lives change, when we, when we see our lives change, experience that grace. We, when, when that happens, it brings amazement. It causes us to be in awe of what the Spirit is doing. So we've seen passion, amazement. Third, thirdly, this third chord of this song that the Spirit expresses in the church is uh, generosity. Look with me at verses 44 and 45. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so I don't know about you, this one can start to make us feel a little uncomfortable because now we're like talking about stuff. <laughs> this is my stuff. This is my things. And it can kind of get, start to feel a little bit like it's intruding upon my life. But notice again here that this, uh, the word together, notice that they were together. You see, this wasn't just a Sunday-only congregation. This was an all-of-life thing, an all-of-life thing. But let's not miss this. Even after the outpouring of the Spirit, hear me on this, okay? Even after the outpouring of the Spirit, the Spirit moves in and all of this stuff, there's still hardship. There's still pain. There's still struggle. There's still difficulty. But as was mentioned earlier, these needs, this hardship, this pain, this difficulty, all of this stuff really is an opportunity to give and to receive love. It's the stuff that we get to work with where God's grace can show up in our lives as we, we share with one another. And so this giving and receiving of love, that's what, we, that's what this, this early church was able to do for one another. And I also would, I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, one of the questions that comes up with this passage when people read through it. They're like, okay, is this, is this passage uh, affirming or is it teaching communism, socialism? And the, the answer really is no. And for really one simple reason. What we see here is being the, the lavish generosity, the sharing, the giving that we see described here is not something that's being coerced. It's not being mandated. It's being freely offered. This, generos this generosity is instinctive. It's spontaneous. It's welling up from within. You see, it's the natural byproduct of what grace does. No one has to tell them to do it. No one has to sit there and say, you have to be generous, you have to be generous. It just, it, it happens as a response. They couldn't help when they experienced the forgiveness and the grace of God. They just couldn't help but to, to bless one another. 
And I'm here to say like, that that is what grace does. That is what grace produces. I know there's a lot of times, but even in our own minds, and I'll be honest, like I struggle with this too, but we think if I give too much grace, if I give too much, if I teach too much grace, if we make it all about grace, people are going to want to go out and set world records for sin. They're going to want to live self-indulgent lives. But that's not what we see here. We see the opposite. You see, good works and generosity, these are all things that we love to see. They don't have to be force-fed onto people who get grace. And this is so important. You see, the radical generosity, it's not the result of them being told to be generous. And we can tell each other all day long until we're blue in the face, be generous, be generous. But merely commanding one another to be generous does not actually awaken the heart to do it. It doesn't awaken in our heart the desire to do it. The radical generosity is not the result of being uh, told to be generous. It's the result of being on the receiving end of God's lavish generosity to us in Christ. And where does this generous God live? Where does this generous, giving God, where does he live? Where does he dwell? Well, he dwells in you. If you are in Christ, he dwells in you. You have generosity in you. You see, the more that our hearts are gripped with what God has done, the more our doing will become increasingly instinctive and spontaneous. That's why we make a big deal about Jesus here, of the gospel, because it, it will produce in us that fruit So this is what the Spirit does. He causes us to move toward one another, not, not keeping the cards close to our chest, you know, but to be able to be all in. He causes us to move towards one another, not avoiding the need, but moving into the need. And so we see the Spirit expressed through passion, amazement, generosity. And of course, all of this naturally leads to this fourth chord, this fourth characteristic, and that is magnetism. Look with me at 46 through 47. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, as this first batch of believers were expressing this spirit-imparted passion amazement, generosity, it became magnetic. There was a gravitational pull. They began to live and love like family. What's cool to see is that this is just a fulfillment of what Jesus promised. He said, the world, he said to his disciples, the world is going to know that you are mine by the way that you love one another. The world is going to know that you are mine by the way that you love one another. You see, our love for one another, our sharing and our meeting of needs, everything that we've described here, the generosity, I mean, all of that on display, our love for one another is one of the greatest apologetics for the validity of the gospel. So when when a group of people can give from, from the generosity of their heart, not being, it's not mandated, it's not being something that's imposed upon and being told and commanded, just, man, I've, I received so much from what God in Christ has done for me that it just produces this generosity. I mean, that, that love expressed out to a watching world is powerful. 
the world will know that we belong to Christ by the way that we love one another. You see, they weren't, the early church here, they're not employing extravagant and creative outreach methods in order to get people to join them. And no, it wasn't their innovations. It wasn't their spectacular giftedness that grew the church. No, it was just the church being the church, expressing the spirit in all of life. The church being the church, expressing the spirit in all of life. You see, they were devoted to the gospel of Jesus to one another, and notice that it was the Lord, it was the Lord who added to their number. He's the one who grew the church. So conclusion, four chords to this, this song that the Spirit is writing on the instrument of the church. Passion, amazement, generosity, magnetism. And let's be careful not to turn this into a checklist. This is not a checklist for something for us to go out and do. And to, oh, We need to go out and do that now. This isn't a checklist. This is a description. It's not a prescription. It's a description of the Spirit being expressed. But what is so cool today, guess what? We have the same Jesus. We have the same Spirit that we're reading about here. We have the same Spirit dwelling in us, longing to express himself through us. So hear me on this. If you are in Christ, you have the same spirit in you. He has infused you with passion, with whether you feel it or not at times. This is true about you. He has infused you with passion, amazement, generosity, and a magnetism that you probably don't even realize yet. And what's so cool is that we together here at Seacoast, everyone watching, everyone online, all of us, we get to be a church that expresses this same Jesus. Again, we're not trying to become all that. We're trusting that the Spirit is in us and that we're created to express him. And so we're going to transition now into a time of communion. You know, as we read about in the band, and Ryan, you can come up here in a second. As we just read about, they, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to remembering the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, and, you know, one thing I just want to clarify, too, that we say this each time is that, you know, Jesus says we, to do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say do this in remembrance of you and your spiritual scorecard, whatever it is. He said do this in remembrance of me. So we do this to remember him. And I know that at times it's easy to feel like, well, I don't feel worthy I don't feel worthy to, to, you know, to be used by God, to even, some people, they withdraw and they hold back from even participating in the Lord's Supper because there's a sense of unworthiness. But guess what? What have we seen in Acts? The, this group of 3,000 plus, think about it. God didn't survey the landscape looking for the squeaky clean and the pure people to be his gospel proclaimers. He literally picked the guilty ones, the very ones who pinned Jesus to the cross, they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. Those are the ones that he, he said, you're going to be mine. You're going to be my very first batch of gospel proclaimers to this world. And so if you're not, if you feel, I don't feel worthy, I mean, you're in good company. Because he has made us worthy. And that's what we, we, we celebrate, we remember, is the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, his perfect love for imperfect people, which changes everything. So let's do that now. All right. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, what a great uh, joy it is for me to just pr 
privilege to serve on a team where, uh, you know, I can sit and receive and be challenged and encouraged. And so uh, thank you for that. Uh, I, I love the idea of this or responding and that this amazement is when we ex- examine the grace of God. And so today as we take this communion cups, I want to challenge you or challenge you, encourage you now to grab uh, the communion cup. Um, if you did not receive them, we have, uh, they're on the entrances um, and out. For those of you on the plaza, they're out there as well. And uh, you can start peeling off the top. This is white grape juice, by the way. They sent us a different color this time. So, But as we take this, we're, this is a tradition that started and uh, we find in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. When Jesus said they were taking the Passover meal and he said, Take this bread now, and this bread represents my body that's broken for you. It was an incredible symbolism and imagery in the Jewish faith of saying what we're doing and in their time was thinking of the Messiah. And he said, that's me. So the bread that represented their hope that they were waiting for, Jesus said, is now fulfilled in me. So he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take this now in remembrance of me. So let's take this together. And after the meal, they got to the cup. And the cup in that meal symbolized, again, a promise of the Messiah, hope that was being sent to them. And Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup... Poured, it poured out for you as a covenant, a new covenant in my blood, which meant that what's going to happen to me is a promise that I am making to you. It's based on what I am doing and providing. And this is what gives us such amazement and awe that God will not break the promise that he poured out for us. So he said, every time you take this, do it in remembrance of me. And let's remember that great promise he made to us together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you didn't wait for us to be worthy. I thank you so much that you looked at that very first church when you started this unstoppable movement, that you didn't wait for a a group of people who were perfect enough, a group of people who had it all together, and you didn't even base your church on great models and strategies. It was based on your spirit poured out on people who are now grateful and grace-filled and responding to what you have given. And God, I thank you that that movement that started 2,000 years ago, we participate in today. We thank you for that. And so, Lord, would you fill us? Would you remind us of your spirit? Would you remind us of your presence and of your grace? And now, Lord, as we respond to you, as we end our time, we want to remember and just pour out our thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen.